Well, it was already announced tonight that we'll be giving some consideration for the next few moments to June's installment of Questions and Answers. As we do that, we're always interested, of course, in appreciating the right division of the Word of God and setting before us some interesting and sometimes thought-provoking matters connected to the questions that you have chosen to ask. As always, I would preface that by saying it's questions that have been asked by, by one or more of you, and therefore, whether it was something put in the box or directly expressed to me in person, either way, it is certainly a delightful time to be able to look at questions and answers. This opening slide is, again, nothing more than a gentle introduction. It is our desire under the banner of 2 Timothy 2.15 to rightly divide the Word of God, to never express our opinion, to not express, if you please, what our preference might be, but rather to allow the Word of God to speak as it addresses the particular question that has been asked. Tonight we have again a few questions, and they're always very good questions, and so high commendation to those who have worded these and ask that we give some consideration to them. Here's our first question of the night. The person asked the following question. Can a man with only adopted children serve scripturally as an elder? A very good question, isn't it? If a man has only adopted children, would he be otherwise qualified to serve as an elder? I've asked you to notice on the slide, again, several considerations drawn from a pair of chapters, one being Titus chapter 1, the other being 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you give thought to them, let's move through those in the following way, giving some basis for our consideration first. We would certainly agree that the organization of the Lord's church is of paramount importance. And that includes, of course, the details concerning her earthly leadership. We know that Jesus, of course, is the head of the church. And in Colossians 1.18, that is so forcefully stated and yet we understand that in local congregations, men have been allowed by the God of heaven, in fact, urged by the God of heaven, to serve as the local elders of that congregation. Now, the observation, of course, is so easy to note that a man has to be qualified to serve as an elder. In fact, there's a rather lengthy list of qualifications, again, provided in Titus chapter 1, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 3. Among those qualifications, if I could just read a couple of the verses, you readily find the following. In 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. That reference to a bishop is an elder. And now verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now that closes the second verse, and though much might be said about the other qualifications, could I just draw to your attention, it says he must be the husband of one wife, so he has to be a married man. But notice nothing about children is stated there. We need to go to verse number 4. One that ruleth well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now suddenly we find that not only must he be married, he has to have children. You'll notice the reference was to his children. And in Titus 1 verse 6, it is there said they must be believing children. 
So that is to say they've reached an age whereby they could make their own personal decision whether or not they, of course, would be servants to the God of heaven. But all of that being said, it now brings us back to the question, which indeed is a good one, isn't it? Suppose a man doesn't have any biological children, but he has adopted children. If all the other qualifications were met, for example, would he be qualified to serve as an elder? As you look at the verses that you and I just noted together, I believe much might be said about the basis for stating that requirement. In other words, it had nothing to do with a man's capability for having a child biologically. Isn't it true that the emphasis totally in verse 4 was this, "...one that ruleth well his own house." having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? The entire basis in light of the qualification involving children is so that there could be a litmus test as to whether or not this man has the sufficient leadership skills, the sufficient, the sufficient skills relative to guidance and direction so that that church can capably have him as a leader. In other words, the qualification has nothing to do with his biological capabilities of being a father. It has everything to do with his capacity to serve as leader. That being said, it would be perfectly fine if the man had adopted children. Otherwise, could we not also note this? Aren't you impressed with how often in the Bible that adoption is spoken of in such a positive way. I pointed out to you on that slide, and just a sampling of the verses, for instance, in Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, verse 5, Ephesians 1, verse 5, let's face it, you and I have been adopted into the family of God. Now, it's true enough that the description of the New Testament is pointed to you and me in such a way that you and I can cry, Have the Father, because we were adopted into His family. And yet you and I are not illegitimate children of His. You and I are not those who, if you please, are falling short in that way. Adoption in the Bible is lifted very highly and in such a great principle of respect. It is, with that said, I believe the answer to our question here is a certain yes. If a man meets the, uh, the qualifications for an elder all those other ones listed, and he happens to have adopted children, if they are in subjection to him, if they are believing children, then he would be qualified to serve as an elder. Now, the second question of the night, in some ways, is at least linked in a very dramatic way, having to do with marriage. Now, it happens not to be connected to the marriage of an elder, but here's the question. When is a marriage finalized? That is to say, when is a marriage sealed? I suppose our current society has a lot of questions about that. And sometimes you may even hear those say this, If a man and a woman choose to live together, committed to one another, are they married? In God's eyes, would that constitute a marriage? Because after all, one must be pretty careful here. One would not want to just be fornicating. <laughs> And yet you call it marriage when God doesn't call it that, correct? One certainly would not want to make that kind of choice. And thus the question again is a very good one. 
when is a marriage sealed? When is it finalized? Now, it seems to me this question is probably going to take a little longer to answer. So I will urge your patience with me as we make several references in the Word of God with the hope that we might give some careful attention to letting the Bible speak to the matter before us now. It all begins with the observation at the top of that slide. We would agree that marriage is a covenant. It is called that expressly in Malachi 2.14. In that passage of Scripture, though it be the last book in the Old Testament, the God of heaven resoundingly through the prophet Malachi highlights the fact that marriage is a covenant. It is thus not merely some personal agreement to something. It is more sufficient, it is more special, and it is a more honorable and noble thing than that. It is a a far more reaching engagement. Now, once we have appreciated the fact that marriage is a covenant, may I now offer your consideration to a text found in 2 Chronicles 15, where a covenant is described and where features of it are presented, allowing us to draw some, shall we say, conclusions about the nature of when a covenant is in fact finalized. Turn back with me then to 2 Chronicles 15. On this slide, I have asked you to consider several features that are a part of that chapter, that are a part of that covenant. It all begins as follows. It was the case that the scene before us in that chapter is one in which not only is a covenant finalized, but we have several details about the specifics of that finalization. And perhaps those details will speak volumes as you and I give thought to answering the question before us. I've highlighted on the slide again very briefly some of the features that are presented in that chapter. First, God equipped the prophet Oded in verses 1 and 2 to bring before the children of Israel a particular message. And in particular, this stirring message was to King Asa and to the people of Judah. Now, we are not that unfamiliar with the power and the majesty of the prophets and their messages. But could I invite you to note what this involved? As the covenant was about to be finalized, there was a description of what they had gone through in days gone by, the afflictions that had been theirs, and the reasons for those challenges. And then amazingly, we rather interestingly find in verse 8, that King Asa made a reply. He responded by taking courage, and in fact, by removing the evil that had been a cause of certain problems. In other words, the issue was of such solemnity that he took action to remove under the urging of the prophet what needed to be removed and eliminated. That shows a high amount of conviction, and it shows a fair amount of determination as well. But that's only the beginning. Notice in verse number 12, you find that the Benjamites, as well as the tribe of Judah, they gathered to offer sacrifice in light of the assembly and in light of the covenant that was to be ratified. Now, in a minute, we're going to draw some parallels to marriage. But could I invite you to note this rather stirring comment? You find in verse 13 that the penalty of death 
was in fact worded with regard to anybody choosing on this occasion, the occasion of 2 Chronicles 15, not to ratify the covenant and not to live in harmony with it. Serious? Oh, yes. So serious that it was urged there would be those put to death. Now, I say all of that to say this. You'll notice in verse number 15 that there was an oath that was affirmed. And as a part of that oath, it was easy to be observed that there was a rather heartfelt dedication for the moment and for what was transpiring. Now, so far, I have used all of that to say that there was a very, very solemn occasion. The prophet Oded had challenged the king. He had heard and responded by removing evil and gathering the people and pronouncing on them death to anybody that would not affirm the covenant and choose to live in harmony with it. After it was ratified, there was a moment of celebration. The people, in fact, enjoyed that time of togetherness and appreciation of the blessing that had just been affirmed and the covenant that had just been sealed. I say all that to say, entering a covenant is not a trivial thing. Entering into a covenant is not just an optional happenstance matter, take it or leave it. It is far more involved with determination, mental capacity, the appreciation of what's involved in this, and the threat of failing to keep it. Not only that, there is a moment of celebration in light of the entering of the covenant. With all that as a background, let's apply it to marriage. We've already learned that marriage is a covenant, Malachi 2.14. And some of the sweetest passages in Scripture remind us about what is involved in this marriage, the blessings promised to those that are part of it, and the nature of the features and characteristics as well. So to return to our question, can a man and a woman choose to to live together and we'll just call ourselves married, that won't work. That just won't work. If they do that, they're living in fornication. They're not married in God's sight. I say that for this reason. Let's apply what we just learned in terms of this covenant. When it comes to a covenant, the seriousness connected to it will naturally manifest itself in light of some of the things that we're now about to list with a degree of separation. First, just as was the case with Asa, there's a preamble with regard to that marriage. Quite often, you and I are well aware that the officiant, usually a preacher, will have some words to say, and I've even highlighted on that slide, typically the ones that you and I are accustomed to hearing. Do you Take this man, this woman, to be your lawful wedded wife or husband, as the case may be. But notice, there's an identification of who is involved. Who is making this promise? Not only that. You appreciate, furthermore, there's a description. At least that's the word I chose to use. In addition to the preamble, quite often the preacher will then devote several moments to highlight the biblical definition of marriage, the nature of the duties, privileges, and rights that go with that, how that marriage began in Genesis chapter 2, and the continuance of it under the blessing of God. 
so that not only those who are participating in this, but yea, all those serving as witnesses will understand the solemnity of this occasion. A wedding ceremony is a serious thing. Two people are choosing to enter a covenant. A covenant not only involving them, but involving God. Because isn't it true in Matthew 19, 6, what God has joined together, they are not merely entering into this. God's the one joining them. He's a part of it. In addition to the description, what about the stipulations? Again, a covenant, when you and I encounter it in the Bible, involves stipulations. That is to say, what happens to those who keep it? What are the rewards that thus they are privileged to receive? But also, what about those who choose to violate it? What's the punishment? How does God look upon it? So in those stipulations, you'll notice at the bottom, typically, somewhere in the marriage ceremony, there's a statement that goes something like this. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. Now notice, a set of obligations have been set forward. Each has the right to either accept or not accept them, and if you choose to accept it, then you do not enter the covenant. You cannot enter it and fail to accept the stipulations. That's not the way a covenant works. But in addition to that covenant, what about a depository? That is to say, you and I recognize well that there is an official written document affirming the entrance of the covenant that's filed in a particular place, typically it's the courthouse. Now in biblical times, quite often it was filed at the temple or in some place connected to the tabernacle. You may recall that those who were scribes or otherwise, they always had access to the records so they could check the genealogical character of someone making a claim to being a part of a certain tribe. There had to be evidence. If you made the claim, I married into the tribe of, of Dan, well, what's the proof? How do we know this? Well, you can well tell there were rather scrupulously kept records. Again, a depository. Notice next on the list. Even following that, witnesses. In the entrance of a covenant, there were witnesses. And you noticed on this occasion, Asa assembled the congregation as witness to the event of the covenant between God and these particular tribes mentioned on this occasion. Witnesses? You and I know in today's modern marriage ceremonies, it's the best man and the maid of honor. They are the primary witnesses that are giving full credence to the nature and consideration of this marriage. But let's face it, all those in presence are giving eyewitness account of the fact these two entered a covenant, and they chose to do so, not being forced to do it, but of their own sound mind and full volition, they chose to enter a covenant binding themselves to one another under the banner of the authority of heaven. That issue in witnesses leads me to bring to the blessings and the curses. We've already noted somewhat about the blessings. It might also be observed, of course, that one part of that statement that often again is a natural part is, till death do us part. So when that man and woman give their affirmation of entrance of a covenant, till death do us part, 
they are giving full assurance that it shall not be broken, that they will attempt to live in harmony with it, with each other, until death sever it. That kind of consideration again reminds us of the solemnity of that moment. Finally, an oath, just like they took in verses 13 to 15. An oath binding their determination to that covenant. You and I recognize this well quite often. There's a rather strong reminder in the marriage ceremony about the consideration of the oath. Usually there's the exchange of rings which seal the oath of that covenant. A confirmation, if you will, that each have entered into it and that is a signet consideration to affirm it. Now, beyond that oath, there's an official pronouncement. The minister will then say, in light of the vows that have been taken, under the banner of these witnesses and before God, I pronounce you husband and wife. There's an official pronouncement. Again, a man and a woman can't just choose to live together and satisfy all of the matters connected to a covenant. It is more far-reaching. And by the way, it has a more public element than that. One final thing, a celebration. Most of the time, there's a reception. Not always, but certainly some element of appreciation as to the greatness of this moment as a time of enjoyment, a time of fellowship and conversation. In light of all of those things, let's return to our question. When is a marriage finalized? When is it sealed? At the moment that that officiate says, I pronounce you husband and wife, the marriage is sealed. Prior to that moment, one or the other could change his or her mind. Prior to that moment, one or the other could choose being unsure about willing to enter the covenant like this. But once the official declaration is made, once that proclamation is asserted, they have now been married. Maybe it is in that light we can close that slide like this. A marriage is thus a very special thing. You and I would do well to encourage our youngsters, our children, to appreciate how special and how wonderful the entering of that covenant is. But to make sure we do so in light of the nature of the covenant as the Bible would present it. That example of 2 Chronicles 15, again, at least points out to us so many of the matters connected to those things involved in the entering of a covenant. Aren't you and I somewhat amazed then at how cheapened marriage often appears in our land? How that despite the vows that were made and despite the other considerations that went into it, somehow folks think that they can just break it asunder with such ease. And admittedly, the laws of our land permit it. That's a travesty in the sight of the justice of God, isn't it? As you and I thus have turned our attention to question number two, may I say that, what about question three? That question reads as follows. Were there animals in the Garden of Eden? Interesting question, isn't it? Were there animals in the Garden of Eden? As you revisit with me Genesis chapter 2, we have the first record, of course, in the Bible of the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, of course, Eden was a much larger place than sometimes you and I recognize. Would you note the wording with me in Genesis chapter 2? 
Verse number 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Eden was a fairly large region, a fairly large place, but in Eden was a garden. Now, the garden didn't take up all of Eden. It only took up some subset or some smaller portion of it. And that garden is, of course, where God placed Adam and Eve to live. The question, though, before us, were there animals in the Garden of Eden? You and I recognize well, as that slide points out, we might quickly ask, was there a boundary to Eden? The Bible makes no statement that there was a fence around it or any kind of a boundary, but rather Eden was this region, and inside it somewhere was a garden. Now, we do know roughly where the Garden of Eden was because of the rivers that are mentioned. Chapter 2 will go on to say that there were four rivers that were thus in the vicinity of that Garden of Eden. Two of those rivers we still know very, rather well today. One of them was the Hittichel River, the other Euphra the Euphrates River. Now, Hittichel is, a, uh, is otherwise a name for the Tigris River, and that river still flows in, in the Middle Eastern part of the world, and so too does the Euphrates River. We thus know roughly where that garden was. But again, the question was not about the geographical location, but about the animals. Isn't it true, as you and I come to verse number 19, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them, and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in helpmeet for him. Now suppose the person who perhaps presented this question may well have noted that, Adam and Eve, of course, they were already created by this point. I'm sorry, Adam was created by this point. But then verse 19 makes reference to God fashioned the animals. Now may we take note, some of the details of chapter 2 are merely reflective summary statements of chapter number 1. Remember, many of the animals were fashioned on day 5, those that were in the air and those that were, again, in the waters. And earlier on day six, God had fashioned land-dwelling creatures. It was not till later on day six that He fashioned man. So might we take note, the animals were already in existence by the time that Adam was formed. But that being said, notice verse 19. does point out by reflective summary that God had again created the animals. They didn't come about by some evolutionary process. They didn't come about by some happenstantial issue from an ancient asteroid. They came about because they too were created. The question then is this. Were there animals in the Garden of Eden? As that slide points out, we know very well that the garden had in it the lushness of trees and the other things needed for Adam and Eve. But you might also note this. That garden was certainly well watered. We're told that in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. But we're also told this. We are reminded very strongly that there are several references to animals in these early chapters of the Bible. Would you note some of them? In Genesis 3, verse number 1, there was a serpent in the Garden of Eden. 
because it had conversation with Eve. And there's no indication that she thought the appearance of this serpent was odd or strange. She happily entered into conversation with it. That would seemingly suggest that there were serpents in the garden. You and I might recall recognize them as some kind of an animal, consistent at least with that idea. And that would make, make us believe there were lots of other animal varieties and types in it as well. But at the very least, in verse 19... When the text says that the animals were brought before Adam to see what he would call them, that would suggest, it would seem, that they had access to the garden and they came before him because God brought them there and thus Adam named them. Now the names that Adam chose have of course been those that have continued with us. But it seems our answer to the question, there were animals in the Garden of Eden. Now, that's the last of our questions for the night tonight. Having looked at those three questions, may I say that as always, if you have questions, just kindly place them in that box back there or share them with me personally, and we'll be happy to include them on some of our future questions and answers sessions. One of the questions awaiting for next month will again be a somewhat lengthy one, so I hope that we're somewhat prepared for what that's going to involve. But as always, other questions will be welcome. Let's close our lesson tonight with this word of invitation. Whenever we consider these questions and answers, it is our desire to merely allow the Bible to speak to the answer to questions that may rest upon your mind and mine. Surely in that regard, we realize questions can often be exceedingly good, so much so that we may struggle in terms of finding exactly what the answer may be. But aren't we so thankful for God's answers He does provide? And it's our desire to always rightly divide that word and to use 2 Timothy 3.16 as our guide. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This evening, if there would be someone who would have a desire to respond publicly to the gospel call of invitation, recognize that that call is so sweet and special with all eternity hanging in the balance. This very night, if you would wish to become a Christian, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have known that way of life, enjoyed the blessings and richness of it at some point, but maybe as of tonight, you recognize it well, and maybe others do too, that your life is not as it ought to be. You have perhaps made claims to one thing, but have lived totally different. You realize God doesn't like that. The Lord isn't pleased with that. And if we could be of assistance tonight by acknowledging your repentance and confession of those errors, God has promised, of course, to forgive. This very night, if we could be of assistance in that way, we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.